podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments will fluctuate, which will cause prices to fall as well as rise, and investors may not get back the original amount they invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information and views expressed should not be taken as a recommendation, advice, or forecast. Welcome to another installment of our investment podcast series. Uh, my name is David Parsons, and I'm joined today by David Lloyd, who is MNG's Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Public Fixed Income and also head of the Institutional Public Debt Fund Management Team. Welcome, David. It's fair to say that we've both been doing this for a while, David. Um, if you had to briefly summarize our collective 80 years in the markets, how would you do so? Well, I'd probably start off by saying how old you've just made me feel. Um, so I think I think probably the main takeaway um, is 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 really that hindsight is a, is a truly wonderful thing. So you know we we can look back now and and things seem quite clear, but of course at the time uh, they're they're very much less so. Um, but with with that benefit of hindsight, and given that you have asked me to be brief, I'd say. I'd say probably the first 25 years or so were spent in the the, the period often uh, referred to as the Great Moderation, uh, which was then in 2008, uh, very rudely interrupted by the global financial crisis and its aftermath. Uh, and, and you know the period since the global financial crisis, we've seen a number of subsequent ones. The most recent, of course, being last year's and and the ongoing COVID crisis. Yes, the, the great moderation. I remember it well. However, I think perhaps some of our younger listeners may not have had the benefit of being able to look back that far. How would you characterize the great moderation and what can we learn from that period? Okay, so firstly, it was it was a it was a long period starting in the uh, the 80s um, of, of positive economic growth, low inflation and pretty importantly actually have reduced volatility um, in both growth and and inflation and there were some very sort of totemic events during during this period which i think collectively served to make us all feel good about things you know for example the uh, uh, the end of the cold war and the the, the collapse of the soviet union and, and things of that nature um, as it unfolded that there was increased faith in the soundness of economic policy and in the competence of governments and in the competence of central banks. Um, and this confidence, if you like, it translated into lower interest rates, um, into a virtuous circle, if you like, of falling inflation, um, economic stability and, and, and greater prosperity. And I, I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting because uh, because of the, the apparent success of all of, all of this, it, it kind of, I think it was sometimes referred to as the Goldilocks period. Um, central bankers achieved almost sort of rock star status um, as, as having their hands perfectly on the tiller of, of, of economic uh, affairs and, and you know, every, everything was and was always going to be all right. Um, but it's worth remembering that the Federal Reserve Governor Ben Bernanke um, attributed the great moderation not only to improved economic policy, but also to structural changes in uh, in economies and also to good luck. Um, so he was, if you like, claiming only partial credit uh, and he was recognizing uh, some factors were completely outside of central banks' influence and that some policy success was was actually fortuitous. 
But anyway, in any event, the great moderation played out over a, a long period of time and it changed the investment landscape. Uh, people felt that they could invest with confidence and that their savings and investments wouldn't any longer be ravaged by inflation. Uh, and uh, as I'm old enough to remember from childhood, uh, in the 1970s, uh, inflation had exceeded 25% in the UK and uh, even in the early 80s, uh, peaked at over 20%. So Bernanke's uh, structural changes that he referred to, um, how do you think they really fit into the inflation picture? So I, I guess you could sort of group these structural changes in, in, into sort of three main headings. So technology, and, and of course, we've, we've witnessed, you know, ten, unimaginable technological change in the last 20, 30 years. You know, some of the stuff that we use every day, um, you know, my, my parents would regard as pure science fiction, you know, sat-nav, um, smartphones, et cetera, pure science fiction. So the, 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 the extent and pace of technological change has been enormous. Deregulation, particularly of labor uh, markets and, and uh, goods markets, uh, has obviously been a big part of the, the story, as has globalization, where companies have adopted uh, a much more globalized model. So look at, looking at those in, in some kind of order, um, technology, obviously, it's delivered not only efficient production through automation and things of that nature, but also via the internet, um, remarkable levels of price transparency for consumers. Uh, and the ensuing competition, because people know the, the the lowest price that they can uh, they can get. This is this is sort of driven price. The, the competition that that has led to has driven prices down. Um, uh, as far as um, uh, deregulation is concerned, we can see large impacts from companies, you know, seeking out the lowest cost production through locating in countries where labour costs uh, are a fraction. Uh, of those in developed economies. And of course, global product markets um, offer producers vast economies of scale. Um, so again, you bring all these together and, and the result, um, you know, was a period of persistent economic, persistent economic growth, uh, reduced asset volatility and, and booming markets. Very much. I mean, it's interesting just to look back over my own career and, and think that uh, when I first started out, uh, there was no internet, there were no mobile phones, and a Bloomberg screen was something that was just a, a little tiny black screen with uh, very limited functionality and, and green uh, characters uh, that sat in the corner. And if you were lucky enough to to have access to it, it, it was the latest in cutting edge technology at the time. Indeed. So I think we've, we've certainly come a long way um, in terms of the investment side of the market as well, in terms of access to technology and the, the, the wider implications of that, I guess, over time have been felt through all aspects of, of industry and the service sector and the investment markets. Um, you did mention, though, that volatility was crucial. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, OK, let, let, let's sort of start at 101. Um, so markets need to be appropriately compensated for, for, for risk. I mean, that, that's absolutely central to efficient allocation of, of, of capital. If you take greater risk, uh, you should expect greater re reward. Um, so the pricing of asset markets contain risk premia. And that is just the, the, the that component of, of 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 return that is compensating you for for the risk that you're taking. Um, so these risk premiums, if you like, are the market's collective attempt uh, to to price risk appropriately. Now, when we talk about risk, in essence, 
we're talking about the range of possible outcomes associated with any particular act or decision or forecast. So, you know, at the most basic level, we expect it to be dry, but there's a risk of rain. We expect to win, but there's a risk that we might draw or even lose. Uh, or more pertinent to this conversation, I'm investing in this stock because I expect it to outperform the market, but there's a risk that it won't. And in the markets, of course, we tend to focus our caution on the bad things that might happen, um, which come in a variety of shapes and sizes. So, of course, there's permanent loss when a company fails or if a bond defaults. But there are also sort of gyrations in prices and returns. Um, we're, you know, even even with a, a company that is 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 perfectly sound, or a, a bond that is 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 likely to and eventually um, uh, redeems at par, and the investor gets their gets their money back, there are still gyrations uh, in the market along the way. And when these gyrations, which basically is just volatility, when these generations are high, the market's focus is inevitably drawn to the potential downside of a particular stock. Um, and in these conditions, of course, investors become risk averse because they can see in their recent experience that as well as prices going up, prices also go down. So it follows from that that the more volatile markets are, the greater compensation for risk is required. Um, so you turn that coin over and 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 you you get what happened in the in the global in the um uh, the great moderation. so, as the volatility of market drivers, which are growth, inflation, and so on, as the volatility of those drivers fell, so the volatility of markets fell. And so the risk premium that the market demands fell. Or put another way, the return required to hold an asset fell. Um, so basically, all this adds up to higher equity valuations, lower interest rates, lower bond yields, and lower credit spreads. So, as well as lower inflation, lower volatility of inflation contributed to a long-term bull market for bonds. Uh, do you believe now, in the current environment, the opposite might also hold true? I do. Yes, exactly that. So, if volatility of inflation were to increase, even if the trend itself was reasonably benign, I believe that there would be consequences for asset prices. Uh, and incidentally, I'm not sure how my career would have panned out uh, in a 30-year bear market rather than the 30-year bull market that I've been lucky enough to enjoy. Uh, you know what they say, it's better to be lucky than good. Um, okay, so we'll come back to inflation and policy making in a moment, but it does bring us back to the end of the great moderation. How does the global financial crisis 2008-2009 fit into the story and how did that change things? Well, first of all, it's worth remembering how scary it was. Um, for a while, it, it, it really did Hard feel, to forget. Yeah, it felt ap <laughs> apocalyptic. Um, you know, I, I really vividly recall conversations about what our next careers might be and, and what, you know, what transferable skills we'd got, bearing in mind we'd spent our, uh, most of our lives looking at bond markets. Um, and, you know, I, I remember conversations with friends about, um, you know, how our life plans around work, children, homes, pensions had been destroyed. It really was that serious uh, and not just within the financial sector. You know, the potential fallout looked like it uh, it could engulf us all. But anyway, um, in terms of what actually happened, I think a decent summation of the global financial crisis that was it was caused by misallocation of, of, of capital effectively lending to people who couldn't pay back. 
by high levels of leverage. Um, and both of those seem to be looking at risk through, if at all, looking at risk through rose-tinted glasses. And I think um, certainly looking back, um, you know, we can we can certainly question the um, the efficacy of the 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 regulatory regime at the time. And I, I think a number of commentators would say that the GFC was, amongst other things, uh, a failure of, um, of of regulation. But anyway, policy response had to be massive. And of course it was. Um, as well as rescuing the financial system, which of course was the first uh, and most important objective, um, policymakers were, once once the immediate crisis was contained, Policymakers were focused on fighting the risk of deflation, and to do so, they unleashed a, a you know a barrage of policy measures, including quantitative easing, uh, which is essentially printing money. Now, to, to your question, why 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 is that still relevant today? Um, it's these extraordinary policy responses that were put in place to address that emergency. Well, they're still very much part of the policymakers' toolkit today. You know, the extraordinary has now become ordinary. Also, the, the, the post-global financial mindset amongst policymakers was the threat of deflation and the fight against it should be at the forefront of policymakers' minds. And I think that largely that mindset is still prevalent. So if you put the great moderation followed by the global financial crisis or GFC together, What's the 20,000 foot or helicopter view, if you like, uh, with regards to inflation now? To be honest, it often feels like we've collectively forgotten about inflation. Um, we've had a benign inflation environment for, for years and policymakers, who, as we've said, have been focused on fighting deflation, have seen their extreme policy settings fail to produce any meaningful inflation. That said, I think there's a very significant flaw in this summary. The fact is, we have had inflation, and in my view, inflation linked to these very policy interventions. It's just that the money created through QE, through money printing effectively, has largely stayed within the financial system. And so it is asset prices, not prices of goods and services within the real or non-financial economy that have risen significantly. And I think because asset prices go up, people think, oh, that doesn't count because that's that's feel-good inflation. You know, I like that. I like the fact that I bought a share and it's gone up or I bought a house and it's gone up. But in any case, it, it strikes me as a perfectly reasonable question to ask, what would be the impact with policy largesse, if you like, to be targeted at the real economy? Yeah. So part of what they've achieved really is to inflate the price of virtually every asset class. Uh, but fast forward to today, how do you think things look in a hopefully post-pandemic world? Well, of course, of course, we 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 can and must never forget the the, the human tragedy of, of COVID, from from which it will you know take a, a, a very long time to recover. Uh, but thankfully, economies are rebounding, and although You'd have to say a lot is unclear about the way ahead. We now have rapid expansions in the United States, in the UK and elsewhere. Um, interest rates are at or around zero. We've got highly stimulative fiscal policy, uh, despite some pretty horrendous deficits. 
and you have central banks effectively printing money to buy government debt. I think that latter point is actually quite interesting because there is a, a real world example of the long term implications potentially of central banks um, printing money to buy government debt. I mean, the Japanese experience of the last 30 years uh, is something that I believe should worry investors. Um, in, indeed, and I, I, I happen to believe it, it it has the potential to be the basis of, of, of some future crisis. Um, but it is quite interesting because, of course, there are some there are numerous numerous precedents in which widespread monetary finance, monetary financing of government spending has had a half from far from happy ending. Um, and you know, you think about what collectively and facetiously a, a term basket cases like um, you know Zimbabwe and and some of the countries in. In South America, which have have uh, experienced hyperinflation, uh, which is attributable to to just printing money. Um, Japan, of course, is a is a is a is a very interesting example of this. Um, the central bank buys pretty much all government debt issuance and has done for years. Uh, but of course, we should recognise that that a good many people would say that. Nothing bad has happened as a result of that, and not 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 yet at least. Anyway, with that aside, um, just parking the, the the threat of whether whether there are crises lurking uh, in in the in the future as a result of this, I I struggle to reconcile the rapid recovery of economies with policy settings that look consistent with trying to tackle a genuine existential emergency. So, you know, it's remarkable, as I put it like this, it's remarkable to me what has actually become normal policy since the global financial crisis, because at pretty much any peacetime period in history, the post-global financial policy settings that we've witnessed are off the scale extreme. So, given the sharp recovery in economies from the huge shock of COVID, what was counter-cyclical policy, in other words, helping the economy when it needs it, can really quickly become pro-cyclical, which is effectively pouring petrol on the fire. I think you're right on that last point. Uh, the ECB, for example, continues to purchase great swathes of the uh, euro corporate debt market, uh, even though credit markets are trading today at better levels than they did before the COVID crisis. I guess the worry is that central banks have inflated assets now to a point where just the merest suggestion of a policy change by them or a taper or a reduction in their quantitative easing purchases, I think is likely to send markets tumbling. Uh, so in a land of QE forever, uh, I get that you're concerned that extreme pro-cyclical policy would eventually stoke inflationary pressure. Um, th doesn't the market trust the authorities to tighten policy appropriately should the inflation threat start to materialise? That, that, in many respects, that is the key question. Uh, to which the answer is possibly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so perhaps those who are saying that the current uptick in inflation is, 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 is temporary and let's remind ourselves that it's it's gone to 5% in the US which is the highest for decades they may be proved right it may be to, it may be temporary um and regardless of whether it is or not uh, some people will have faith in the authorities to move appropriately and quickly um but i'm a little concerned that some authorities 
governments rather than central banks uh, in the main, I, I suspect, had become not only complacent, but actually emboldened by the apparent free lunch of debt being effectively financed by printed money. Now, of course, very few would admit that this is what's happening. They'd, they'd of course, claim that monetary and, and fiscal policy um, are acting entirely independently. But it's, it, it's worth bearing in mind that there are commentators and politicians out there openly espousing ideas such as modern monetary theory, which proposes that there is no practical limit on how much a government can spend using printed money. And from an inflation point of view, that, that construct, it worries me. It really does. And incidentally, it does amuse me that the acronym for um, modern monetary theory, MMT, is the same as that for magic money tree. Uh, it, I think there's, uh, there's, 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 there's perhaps something pertinent to bear in mind there. I wish we all had a magic money tree. Mm -hmm. So I guess you see policy as a risk if it's not tightened appropriately. But what are the structural disinflationary forces we were talking about earlier, for example, deregulation and globalization? That's a fascinating subject. And, and to be honest, um, I'm possibly I'm, worthy of another podcast, even uh, very, very likely. Uh, but to be honest, I'm I'm unsure. Um, I do wonder whether the pen pendulum around deregulation and globalization may be beginning to swing the other way or or at least the, the, the you know, the we've had most or all of the, the benefits. As I say, I'm really unsure about this, but certainly, you know, the the political agenda in large parts of the globe um, is coalescing around two really large themes. First, inequality, which is held to have massively increased um, in the, in the post-global financial pe period because inflated asset prices um, benefited the already prosperous. Uh, the second main theme, uh, and probably more important even than that, is, is sustainability. Um, and in, in some, probably by no means all, but in some respects, any serious attempt to tackle these issues uh, is inimical to the deregulated globalized model, uh, particularly given that many people, are, I think, believe that these agendas can only be addressed with interventionist governments playing a much bigger role uh, in the economy through their actions and through laws and through regulation. So I guess at its most simplistic, and, and this is simplistic way of looking at it. If, if one believes that deregulation and globalization have been disinflationary, then it's well worth pondering whether increased relation, uh, regulation and localization uh, might be inflationary. So picking up as ever on that inflationary point then, what should we be looking at to track this going forwards, do you think, to, to really give us a, a clue whether this is the, the direction of travel? I think key, or rather most important, I'd be watching very closely what the central banks do and what they say in response to incoming data. Central bank credibility is, is central to market confidence. So we need reassurance that the central banks are alive to the inflationary threat and that they will act accordingly should it uh, properly materialise. Certainly around central bank policy, I think the word on inflation that's been used most frequently is that it could, well, it's expected to be transitory. 
perhaps that could be a little bit premature. I mean, labor market costs and supply chain pressures have a habit of um, starting out transitory and becoming quite sticky and entrenched. I think central banks at the moment seem to be running significant risks around a policy error if they do allow inflation to become entrenched. Indeed, indeed. Um, and we we need to become alert to, I suppose, what we might call leading indicators for inflation. And particularly, I would pick up your point around, around labour costs, because without feeding through into higher wages, higher prices can't usually be sustained. That's why often people talk in terms of a wage price spiral. Um, now, in the, in the near term, people dur- during COVID, people have accumulated savings. Uh, and those, of course, can support consumption and higher prices for a while. But in the end, wages will have to keep up if if an inflationary trend um, can, can, can become a, a persistent thing. So we've already said we're already seeing labour shortages in the US and the UK, particularly at the at, at the lower um, end of the wage spectrum. Um, you know, record numbers of people have left the the workforce, um, and you know I've heard plenty of stories in the UK of of you know businesses literally not being able to open or having to. Um, uh, pair back their hours um, because they can't get the staff and hearing hotel staff being poached from one hotel to the other. Um, uh, and of course, this is this is feeding through into um, into into wages. Um, so I guess, you know, we've got to be we've got to be clear that the numbers at the moment are ticking up, as we said, you know, inflation in uh, in the US exceeding five percent. Uh, it's ticked up in the UK, too. Um, inflation's arrived, and the question remains whether the central banks can, you know, whether it is temporary or more permanent, uh, and if it is of a of a of a more sticky nature, whether the central banks can put the uh, put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I think the final thing is is, but is again is really key is is if you like our collective mindset, um, our markets and individual economic decisions and actions influenced by the expectation of persistently higher inflation, and thus far the answer appears to be no. Uh, as I said earlier, you know inflation. Or I might have said earlier, inflation expectations are, are still pretty relaxed, pretty benign. But this is something we should watch really carefully because if that changes, if people collectively begin to expect higher inflation, uh, then there will be potentially significant consequences for asset valuations. So bringing it back to where we started, is inflation real? Puns aside, I think we would both agree that we may be heading into riskier territory for asset markets at present, and bonds in particular um, don't like inflation. So something that I think we'll have to to watch closely. There are relatively few investors today, though, I think, who've managed assets through inflationary periods, which I think potentially adds a, a further layer of risk to, to asset prices as well, should the inflation prove to be non-transitory. For now, though, uh, we're going to watch the data, the central banks and the policy responses and gauge our own responses accordingly. Uh, David, thank you very much again for your insights today. Great pleasure. This podcast is for investment professionals only. For further information, please view the notes which accompany this episode.